This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. I find myself looking at pictures a lot more with my kids. Yeah, I think that'd be a good thing to do, right? They, it's a frozen moment in time. And so they can kind of understand who people are. Like we have a book of like our family. Mm-hmm. And so like we flip through and we look at the things and it's, my sister made it for us. So it says things like, Lulu, my mother is Lulu. Lulu likes to go to the theater to see plays. Lulu loves Violet. Violet is my daughter. Uh, and then when I read to Oliver, I say Lulu loves Oliver. So this way he feels that Lulu doesn't just ignore him. But it, I find it helpful just to kind of go over like who the people are in our lives and to tell them a little bit about them, I guess. Yeah. No, that sound, that's actually a very adorable story, Michael. Yeah. That's good. That's time well, time well spent. And I think kids do well with pictures. Yeah. You know, kids are really good at paying attention to detail. And it's adults will often show kids pictures with some aim in mind. And especially young kids will like gravitate towards the things that we've looked past, right? They they, they don't make the assumptions about what's important in a picture. And so it's really fascinating to like look at pictures with kids. That's funny. There's in one of the pictures, one of my uh, nieces who we don't see often is, is using a knife. And all Vile wants to know is, what's that? What's she doing? And I have absolutely no idea what she's cutting. But we talk about that so much. But isn't that you could ask? Isn't that a good story time, right? You can make up your own stories That's about what is true. she doing. Yeah, no, I, I do make it up sometimes because I don't know what else. She's moving do. it to a safe place to make sure that no oh, one yeah, yeah. puts themselves on the knife. That could be, you could, that have could have be a little knife safety. So you teach elementary social studies methods, correct? Mm-hmm. Do you do some like formal discussion about like how to use photographs or how to use images with with the young students? Yeah, we do. We do some practice with them. So, you know, I've done a variety of things. We've done show and tell where photographs are one of the artifacts you can bring in. Right. And we do it historically where you, you know, you bring in something of importance that helps to explain who who you are and like your history or your family history or something about the place you live. And so we, I allow students often to bring in artifacts that are important to them. Um, but then also, yeah, just I really like doing comparison photographs, like looking at photographs of places that students have familiarity with yeah, and how they've changed over time and oh, letting nice. them look at like, yeah, and that's kids can do really well with that because you often think about what kind of historical discussions can we have with kids? Well, if you show them two images, one from the present and one from like 100 years ago, it's very yeah. interesting. And of course, I use it as an opportunity to get on my soapbox about cars Oh, you um, and how, how they've changed, right? Like the space around it. You know, I, I have a whole thing I'd like to do with cars. What was the, uh, oh, like from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, like the trolley cars? Well, and yeah, and like how transportation has changed over time and how it changes like our spaces we live in in our cities, how it's changed our cities. So, you know, because when you look in pictures from 100 years ago, when a lot of people didn't have cars, you can kind of envision that people would want to live close to the town center. Yeah, they couldn't get a great distance. And so you think about how our cities have started to change. And when you go to the oldest parts of cities, they're very walkable. But when you go to stuff built post World War Two, they're not. I love 
to draw that out. That yeah. Those kinds of differences. You can also do it really good with aerial photographs, right? That show oh. like the differences. Oh yeah. In, yeah. in how streets are designed. Used to historically you used to get grids that were very walkable, and and post World War II you get these subdivisions that whirl around and have ends that where you can you know segregate yourself from the rest of the neighborhood. All kinds of good stuff to investigate, but kids do well, as, you know, and it can be good for a lot of students, even students, you know, if your school is primarily doing instruction in English, you know, students who are emergent bilinguals, kid really you know, showing them pictures that they can relate to and connect with, it can be a good way to to help them yeah. connect. And it's good for all students, but there's a lot of like advantages, I think, to using photographs. In high school, I do a lot of like see, think, wonder, like first we kind of describe what it is. And then we think what things might mean. And then we use it as kind of like a question generation, which is pretty helpful to kind of like launch into whatever discussion. Like it's a really fun activator, I think. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot to wonder about in pictures, right? They they tell you, they give you little slivers of the story, but there's so many questions that emerge. I, I would hope it would develop a curiosity about the past. Do you ever do the National Portrait Gallery they have this thing, it's like 30 second look where you stare at an image. Now they're doing portraits, but you stare at it for 30 seconds and then you shut it off. And then collectively you have to try to like draw it or explain as best as you can, like collectively to kind of see what people get in those 30 seconds. It's kind of an interesting, wow. like memorable, not really a memory, but like what people are drawn to and like what collective thing we can kind of create together. Yeah. And, and photographs like bring forth that whole discussion. What is memory? Right. Ooh. And and that's changed over time. And photographs are one ways, one of the ways it has. And now so much of our lives are, are, you know, we have videos of things happening and how will we keep those as family, you know, keepsakes and where will they go? Where will the data go? And I don't know. It's interesting. It is interesting. So hopefully we do have a guest who's going to somehow connect our discussion to something a bit <laughs> larger. We don't make it easy on them always, do we? <laughs> no, no, no. We certainly don't. And uh, James Miles, why don't you come on into our discussion? James Miles, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. We are thrilled to have you. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your background in education? Who is James Miles? Yeah, of course. So I taught social studies and history in uh, public high schools in the Vancouver area for about 10 years. And it was during my time teaching in high schools that I became more and more interested in sort of how we teach about what has been called sort of difficult histories, in particular colonialism in Canada and the United States. And I felt that myself in particular, I was teaching this poorly and I wanted to know more. And this sort of led me into graduate studies in education, first at the University of British Columbia and more recently at the University of Toronto, where I'm currently working on my PhD in, in history education. We're happy to get your spider bite moment. That's something that we haven't talked about lately. But it seems like you're you were aware of uh, Spider Man. He was bitten, and then he became Spider Man. Your radioactive <laughs> moment, your spider bite was, you know, realizing that you want to do better. Yeah, I don't think there was there was one moment where I remember the bite, but I think over time, just thinking that, wow, I really need to be doing a better job of this, and I don't know how to do it, and I figured that you know I had to go back to school to figure out how to do that. You mentioned Toronto, and then Michael mentioned Bite, and I just am now longing for Toronto food. The, the big American Educational Research Association conference was in Toronto last year. I love Toronto, but I hear it's snowing there, so now I'm, I love it less. Is there one food you particularly want in Toronto? There's, there's such a variety. I think there's so many little like mom and pop 
shops, you know what I mean? And that I got, I couldn't even start. We ate such good food the whole time. It was just cool. And it, it often felt like it was, you know, I felt like it was, I was eating from families who, who'd been there for years. And so that was, it was just, I can't even, I don't even know where to start, but I really like Toronto. Is there something that Toronto is known for in terms of food? I don't think so. I, I think, as Dan said, it's known for sort of lots of different food from all over the world. And mm-hmm. there's not one in particular, but different communities, different neighborhoods. It's, you know, you can find anything here. And it's such a great city for that, for exploring different, you know, foods from all over the place. So, James, congratulations, first and foremost, because you published in Theory and Research and Social Education. Thank you. That's pretty impressive. And you did, you're doing that as a PhD student, which is like 20 levels above me because I could barely like get to my classes when I was a PhD student. So congrats. That's impressive. Thanks so much. Yeah, I was really happy and grateful that I got to share this research at uh, Theory and Research and Social Education. And yeah, I was yeah, delighted that it, it was published there. So the article is titled Seeing and Feeling Difficult History, a case study of how Canadian students make sense of photographs of Indian residential schools. Can you tell us about this article? Sure. So this was uh, some research that I'd done actually previously during my uh, master's. And so it was working with a group of 21 grade 10 students or 10th grade students who were looking at the set of six photographs of Indian residential schools. And so initially the study was about trying to think about how students use photographs to think historically. And so I was thinking about how do they look at it as evidence? How do they take perspectives and how do they perhaps make ethical judgments about history using these photographs? But what I found in the research as these students talked through these photographs and thought about them more was they provoked all these different and interesting responses that were often about emotions and affect and making their own personal connections that while not you know incredibly surprising what they were saying it made me start to think about okay what are these images doing and how might we make sense of what images what role they play in classrooms do you mind telling us a little bit about the image that you chose sure so i ended up choosing six photographs that the all that groups of students looked at over the course of several classes and I wanted to pick photographs that were not ones that I had curated, but ones that were commonly produced in textbooks and curricular resources and so on. So six photographs, two of them were sort of class photos of groups of students from Indian residential schools. Some were individuals sort of in the schools themselves. One was of a young boy having his haircut in the schools. Another was a sort of before and after photograph that was, you know, has been quite famous in Canada of sort of the supposed transformation that these schools were enacting on Indigenous peoples. And so they weren't in any way sort of graphic or violent photos in an explicit way, but they were sort of demonstrative of the sort of cultural assimilation and uh, intended, you know, purpose of residential schools to Christianize and to quote, civilize Indigenous peoples. Those types of photos could be so powerful and also so harmful for particularly for indigenous students, right? I mean, it's it's this cultural genocide that we're looking at pictures and understanding. But I also would suspect that some students don't have the background knowledge to see how problematic the photos are. So how, how did students react and and, and um, how did you navigate their reactions to the photos? Right. So I think, I mean, one thing I wanted to do was to try and give them some background. So the first class was trying to giving them some some contextual information to help them make sense of these photographs. But I also was sort of very aware that, and I think part of the sort of 
rationale for this study is that I think we are constantly exposing students to images that can be traumatic, regardless of students' identities. And I think that these come up all the time in textbooks, in PowerPoints that teachers show all the time. And so what is it these images are doing? And I found that the students responded to these in, in sort of very interesting ways. I think the first thing they moved to do was often to sort of feel bad for the students, right? There was this sort of recognition that some sort of suffering or pain was going on. And so they sort of began to say, oh, I look, they look so unhappy. They look, you know, so angry. And I can see that in their faces. But very quickly after that, the students started to think through that sort of feeling and began to think about how perhaps maybe these photographs don't actually show, you know, this historical violence as they had initially thought or as, as I almost set them up to see that. And so they began to say, oh, these don't look so bad. These, these students look like they're fine, like they're being treated well. Like, what is the big problem here? And then the third thing they, they tended to do was try and make connections to their own lives. Again, not surprising, but trying to think about what connections they made. And often it was, oh, well, our school is also trying to assimilate some of us. Is it the same thing that's going on in these schools? And so there was all these sort of almost simplistic comparisons going on between what was happening in residential schools and what was happening in their own school that they were using to make sense of these photographs. And there's probably some problems there because, again, like this, many of the students, particularly, right, if they're white and have settler, you know, histories themselves, like they may be far more tied to oppressors in these situations, but have very little knowledge of that and have not worked through that. So how, how did you, again, in a, in a room full of students, navigate that? Yeah, so I think it was in the, the case of this classroom, most of the students were, were, in fact, you know, not white, but not indigenous either. And so they came into the classroom feeling, well, what does this history have to do with me particularly? And why should I feel in some ways implicated or responsible for the history of colonization, even though perhaps I've been in this country for a couple of years or so on? So I think that that created this whole another set of tensions and, and sort of issues to be explored, something I don't go too much to in this article. But again, I think this idea of implication in colonialism is something that we're all dealing with perhaps on different levels but i think that helping students think through that and think about how regardless of their identity that being on this land in some way implicates them in a history of colonialism and violence we actually just had christine roger stanton on in uh, episode 134 to talk about just that settler colonialism so that's kind of interesting. So if you're listening, go ahead and go back after this. So before we go any further, do you mind talking a little bit about the residential schools? For sure. So I think the topic of residential schools is something that Canadians more and more are starting to grapple with the history of, and it's becoming more and more a, a mandatory component of curriculum across the country. So to give you a quick background, the residential schools were sort of part of Canada's official policy of assimilation. And the schools were in operation from about the mid-1800s, and the last school closed in 1996. So through this period, over 150,000 Indigenous children were taken from homes and placed in these schools. And it was sort of common that there was physical, sexual and emotional abuses that occurred in these schools. And it's estimated that as many as 6,000 children may have died in these schools, often from diseases. Historians have sort of been investigating this topic more and more. And, and recent historians have, like Ian Mosby have found that, you know, the Canadian government was also experimenting on these children in terms of nutrition experiments that were carried out in the schools in the 40s and 50s that were denying children proper nutrition. So there's a whole sort of slew of violence and injustices that occurred in the residential schools. And it wasn't until sort of the 90s and 2000s that survivors of the schools began 
advocating and petitioning the government to take action. The government eventually responded with an apology in 2008 and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which sort of issued its final report in 2015 and its 94 calls to action, one of which was that this should be taught in all schools and should be part of curriculum and social studies across the country, which is now sort of becoming part of. It's almost paradoxical, right? Schools were used as places of, of you know, cultural genocide, cultural assimilation, and then now schools are, at least the, the effort is that schools are not going to be used places to do some kind of repairing of that. Of course, there's going to be a lot to be said in how this is taught and whether people are educated to teach this well. And we, we've talked about boarding schools in the United States, which are very similar similar to these residential schools in Canada in some of our previous episodes. So I think there's probably some comparisons and the Carlisle yeah, school was like, um, it was kill the Indian, uh, save the man. That was the, the mm-hmm. slogan. Do you, is, was there any connection between the Carlisle schools and the, the residential schools in Canada? Um, I'm not sure specifically the Carlisle schools, but I do know that the Canadian government had sent people to the United States to study what the U S was doing in terms of its indigenous population. And so many of the recommendations that came back to Canada were things that the Canadian government had learned from the U S and had implemented. And I think one of those suggestions was that boarding schools were necessary, that sort of day schools where students went back to the communities was not enough to help sort of assimilate and destroy cultures that, that in fact you had to take children away from their homes and place them in boarding schools was one of the key recommendations. Well, it's a quite a, you know, damning indictment of our of American history that students need to know about that people turn to us to see how to enact some of these practices like like residential schools. I think it's not good. We've done some things that have become models for other places that are that are problematic. So, James, can you tell us a little bit more about how the lesson would work and, and what you'd want? How would you want teachers to use these photographs? Because these photographs are often just thrown in textbooks and in other resources. and Or on the side of a presentation where you don't mm-hmm. even like really acknowledge it for too much. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I'm guilty of, you know, that too, in terms of presenting to students and having, okay, I want an image to illustrate something. I'm going to just Google search this and find whatever I can. And, you know, hopefully that represents what I'm talking about. But <laughs> I think what this research is trying to get at is that I think we need to take more care and pay more attention to what images we're showing students and think about what they are in fact getting from these images and what perhaps is seen and also unseen in some of these images. Um, I think it's important that students can use images as some sort of evidence that they can sort of analyze them. That's one part of this. But I think too is thinking about the emotional and effective responses that students often come away with from some of these images. And it's not just, of course, residential schools. I think, you know, often when genocides are taught, there are certain images that are sort of reproduced numerous times. So I think of certain images from the Vietnam War that are produced, you know, in many textbooks and, of course, in many presentations and so on. So I think it is, what is it that these images are doing in our classrooms and how might we think about that more carefully to think that, you know, what is what are ways we can help students make sense of these, but also explore those responses. So if students are having an emotional responses, we can sort of work through that with them and think about what that might mean for their their learning of this history. So when you gave the students the images, like what was your instruction around that? Did you just toss the six images at them or and I know you had the pre-lesson, but Yeah, so I asked them to do several things with these photographs. So and as I said earlier that 
initially my goal was to help them just think historically with these images. And so several of the things I, I did was I wanted them to one to sort of categorize these images, put them into as many categories as they want. I wanted to sort of tell them, tell me what they could see with these. I wanted you to, them to say like, what perspectives can they take with these? Can they use these images to make any sort of ethical judgments about the past? And I also asked them to pick sort of the most meaningful or powerful image and create a caption for that. So there was a series of tasks they were working through in groups of sort of three or four, where they were sort of picking images, talking through them, trying to decide what they were seeing, and also trying to decide what was most important that they take away with these images, take from these images. That sounds, I like that they, I like the difference in tasks that you have. That's interesting. The categorization to that, did they, what were some of the categories that they came up with? Yeah, it was, it was interesting because I think when we look at photographs or when students look at photographs too, one of the first, you know, tendencies we have is to think, okay, are these staged or are they sort of authentic, you know, snapshots in time where people just happen to be sort of caught. And so the, one of the first things students did was they said, okay, these are sort of class photos. These ones are staged or these ones are sort of trying to you know, communicate some sort of message where these other photographs are more sort of authentic or they're really what was happening in the schools. And so I found that to sort of difference really interesting in thinking about not that of course there's different levels of sort of staging and manipulation of photographs but this idea that some photographs show the truth and some are staged and that not all photographs are sort of in some ways interpreting or the photographer is interpreting things and why they're included is also for a purpose so i found that sort of what am i trying to say here that sort of division between real and and fake almost kind of a, a stark difference that i thought was something that needed to be explored in more depth as well one concept you used in this paper to kind of help explain the difficulty of, of you know, doing this work is difficult knowledge. Um, and we had Jim Garrett on an uh, episode 53 talk about teaching difficult knowledge. How did how did that can you remind us like the way you think of difficult knowledge and how that played out in your study? How did that inform you as a teacher knowing that this is kind of the kind of the, the ways that people have written about teaching difficult subjects? Yeah, I think uh, I use difficult knowledge, Spritzman's concept here, as a way to sort of think about this history that in many ways implicates all Canadians in, in different ways, but how do we respond to that history when we're confronted with it, and how does it implicate sort of our identities and our lives and our place on this land? So I was interested in thinking about how do these students respond to this history and these images that sort of, sort of in some ways may have implicated their identity but may not have. And I think difficult knowledge helped me think through that and seeing how very quickly students were, were quick to move to what Britsman calls this idea of lovely knowledge. So trying to think that perhaps settler colonialism in these schools weren't that bad, that the, the teachers and the, the nuns who ran these schools were in fact doing what was best for the students. And so regardless of this information that I'd given them, which basically spelled out the abuses and the violence that occurred in these schools, students were very quick to find sort of evidence from these images that this was not harmful, that these were benign or even benevolent schools. And so I think for me, that idea of difficult knowledge was showing how students work through this difficult knowledge to find some sort of comfort in these images, that these were schools that were doing the best they could, regardless of, of what was actually going on. And that really speaks, I think, to the episode we had with Christine Rogers Stanton, where she you know, said we need to unsettle the settler within, right? And we need to challenge ourselves. And a lot of students, I think it's about their identities that they don't want to see 
if they identify with Canadian history and being a Canadian, they oftentimes don't want to then view themselves as somehow part of historical, you know, historical harm, historical tragedy, historical, you know, cultural genocide issues like that. And so they, they struggle to kind of wrestle with it. So how did one thing that I think Debbie Reese talked about in some of her work, and we, we had her on in episode 67 is she's talked about, you know, that specifically she said this about books, but I think pictures could probably do it too, that some pictures can serve as like, you know, windows into the past. And they can also serve as mirrors back when students see themselves represented. But she's also talked about the idea of curtains that sometimes like we have to not all knowledge and some indigenous people may not want all photographs being used. Did you have to wrestle with that at all about which ones to use and which ones maybe some nations and people may not want you to use in the classroom, particularly because, you know, whether it's it's something that is uh, of importance to their nation or whether there's a fear of it just being you know, students arguing about whether this was harmful or not. Yeah, that is something that I, I grappled with for quite some time. And it actually, I mean, to be honest, it, it came up for me when I was starting to sort of analyze the data that came out of this research and thinking about, okay, you know, these photographs were in textbooks, in resources, and they're being used by organizations, indigenous organizations who are trying to teach this history. But I started to think about like, well, who who are we to look at these images? And what right do we have to look at these? And do we just assume that these are, you know, images for all of us to look at? And that act of looking in some ways, you know, communicates that sort of power of settler colonialism is we are gazing upon these people and who had no consent in their photo taking. And even the photos themselves are held in archives primarily by the churches who ran the schools. And, you know, the, the, the fact is that they're not in the article, in, in the, the online article. There's a link to some of these photographs, but these photographs are not in the public realm either. So I think that question for me was something that sort of created a lot of ethical questions as I was sort of working through writing this piece and thinking about how do we look at photographs of violence and suffering in the past? And how do we decide what we're going to show students? And, you know, how do we communicate that these are ethical decisions that we're making in terms of whose who's suffering we're willing to show and not show? So if I wanted to go into my classroom and use images, you know, of difficult histories dif- that address difficult knowledge, particularly around indigenous people and residential schools, what advice would you have for me as a teacher? Yeah, I, w- I would... The advice I would give is there's a couple things I would suggest. One is I think is remembering the images are not just sort of there to represent or illustrate some history, that they are doing their own work as pieces of evidence and sources. And that by choosing certain images to represent things, they may be doing more than what you're intending them to do. So being aware that the images you're showing in class may have a meaning in your head, but they may be taken up in very different ways in students' minds. And also I think giving students a sort of heads up about the types of images that you're showing, I mean, in some cases it's more explicit than others. And I think there's a, you know, there are certain limits, you know, of what, what images you might show and not show. And I think photographs can also be really powerful, you know, tools for sort of provoking some sort of uh, interest in a topic or getting people starting to think about something. I think, at, you know, at the outset of this episode, you guys were talking about this idea of using photographs as a way to sort of an entry point to a topic. And I think that's a really powerful thing. But I think, you know, there's also this idea that images are sort of proof of something. And that I think thinking beyond that simplistic way of like, oh, I seeing is believing in some ways. Okay, what is it? 
you know, who was taking these images and why were they taken and who published them and why should we trust them? I like it. James Miles, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I really appreciate the fact that you, you took time all the way up in Canada to join us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for your time. James, where can our listeners find you and your work online? So I do have a Twitter account that is not very active, but uh, I've been involved with uh, one thing I did want to mention is uh, the Critical Thinking Consortium, which is sort of a nonprofit educational organization up here in Canada. They produce a lot of resources on teaching historical injustice as well as using images in the classroom as a free thing. So that's something that I can definitely you know, provide some links to because that's an organization I've done some work with in the past. That would be lovely. And what did you say that Twitter account is so people can tweet you uh, all kinds of questions? So my Twitter is at James underscore Miles. Nice. Very creative. Oh, no, it's, it's perfect. It does <laughs> the job. It does the job. Mine is Dan Kratka, which is my name. <laughs> Mine is at 42 Think Deep. I really like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Michael gets wins this one. You win this round. And my name was taken. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> well, James, thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly do hope to continue the discussion online at the, cons at the Critical Thinking Consortium and in other places. Great. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. And at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creating education or you just want to chat, and really you do, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and the um, the Pinterest. But again, I haven't actually done anything with it, so there's really no – I mean, you can go there, whatever. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Please do so. That helps people find this podcast. And, and it helps also... val uh, validate our, our, our feelings. Yes, yes. It validates our humanity. Every day we don't get one. I get a little sad, and it's been a lot of sad days lately. Everyone <laughs> let that image stick with you. <laughs> and we would also like to thank our editor, Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and Zach University Seitz. of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Dan Krutka. And I am at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.